Today's text, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, uh, in the beginning of that. But right before we start, I just want to take a quick mo- teaching moment here. I know that um, a lot of you have been here before. Maybe you've been here for a long time. Maybe this is your, you know, you haven't been here that long. And I just want to take a second and, and talk a little bit about what we do. Um, what we practice here is called expository preaching. And so what we do is we believe that the Bible is God's word and it is his word spoken to us. And so we want to be creatures of the word and we take it very seriously. So what we do is we go book by book. We take some breaks in between, but we generally will go book by book, verse by verse, or do an overview or something just so that we as a church can have a greater understanding of what God's word says, what it means to us as Christians. And we just put the highest emphasis on this. So that's why we do the, what we do here, that's why we preach the way we preach. That's why we've been in Mark since um, several months ago. We will be going through it through December. Um, so we're almost there. It's 155 days till Christmas. I know you're excited about that. Anyway, I just wanted to give a little quick note on that. Why, why we preach the way we do is because we want to be people of the word. So on May 6th of this year, as 2,200 guests Uh, joined together from over 203 different countries, and 20.4 million broadcast viewers in the UK alone watched on, Charles III was crowned King of England. It was a big to-do. Estimated costs of the coronation range from 50 to 250 million euros. So in America, that would be like 55.5 million to 2,700 million dollars just for the celebration. Um, There was this huge uh, procession. There was art displayed. There was musical guests as he was crowned and anointed king. King Charles will remain king of England until he passes away and the crown descends to his heir. So that is in comparison to what we're going to talk about today, and that is, it's titled in your Bible, if you, if you see it there, as the triumphal entry. And this is a story that no matter whether you've been in church for a short time or a long time, you probably have heard or you know part of, and that's because most every church celebrates what we call Palm Sunday every year. That's the week before Easter. And if you grew up in a church like I did, it pertains to like kids walking through the service, like waving palm branches around. Um, and so it, it, what it does is uh, it's the week before Easter, like I said, each year, and it marks the beginning of what we call Passion Week, um, and it is the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem for the Passover, and it begins with Palm Sunday or Palm Monday, what it would really be in, in actual time, and it goes through the crucifixion and then Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Christ. Um, So interestingly enough, this passage that we're going to read today um, about the triumphal entry, it's recorded in all four Gospels. Um, And Mark, who we have been spending, like I said, several months in, he actually took enough time that he dedicates chapters 11 through 16 just on this week of Christ's life. He dedicates a third of his Gospel account to this week leading up to the crucifixion. And so this is, this is a, obviously an important and big portion of what we know about the life of Christ is, is what happens in this week. 
And so we're going to read the text together. I'll read it, and you can follow along on the screen. Verse 1 in chapter 11, it says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem from Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, what are you why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at the door in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And Jesus brought the colt to, or I'm sorry, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who, who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed, be, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So we're going to walk through this verse by verse. In verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. So Jesus had actually started this journey roughly nine months beforehand, okay? And he had gone through Galilee and Samaria, Peria and Judea. And he's ultimately heading to Jerusalem for the Passover, okay? Bethany, the, the towns that he passed through, Bethany would have been a small town on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Bethphage would have been much smaller. It would have been more like a little hamlet that they had just passed through. Um, so even though it doesn't seem like there's a lot going on in this verse, there is an interesting little note here that we already see the fulfillment of a prophecy by Zechariah um, out of, we're not going to turn there, but it's Zechariah 14.4. It actually speaks about the Lord standing on the Mount of Olives over Jerusalem as he enters in. So we already see that this is a time and a place that was set apart by God from eternity. Like that even though it took him nine months to get there, he's heading this direction. He's, and we know, we know he's heading towards the cross and that this is a time that had been foretold. He's going to be standing there at this moment on this day. Verse 2 through 6, it says, And he said to them, that's the two disciples he was sending, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went and away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So here again, just a few verses later, we see yet another portion of prophecy fulfilled, again, from Zechariah. And if you want to turn there and read this with me, we can read this one together. It's Zechariah 9.9. It's one of the last books of the Old Testament. And it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's a really interesting prophecy, right? Because you hear that there's a king coming and that he has salvation, and yet he's coming humbly on a donkey. And if you compare that to what we had talked about a moment ago about Charles III's coronation, where there's all this pomp and circumstance and just this huge to-do and no expense, expense, expense spared, spared expense, whatever. You see Jesus coming, and what is he doing? He's riding on a donkey. So from this point, we can, we can know that um, this would-be coronation, this would-be celebration, it, it's kind of a sham. Jesus enters on this lowly beast of burden. And now, I know, I know, all of you are scholars, and you're sitting there thinking, Matt, 1 Kings 1, 30 through 48, I think, talks about David owned a, a donkey. He owned a mule, and he loaned it to Solomon, and Solomon rode his mule. So it's a kingly thing to ride a mule. Okay, I, I I'll give you that. But as we read on, we, it becomes very apparent, despite that kingly mule that David owned, that this is a lowly donkey, and that this is no coronation of a king. We also see a glimpse here of some of the deity and omniscience that Jesus possesses. Because they're coming from the opposite direction, and yet he sends people ahead of him, and he says, hey, you're going to go and you're going to see this donkey, and it's tied up. And not only are you going to see this donkey that I know is there, but whenever you grab it, Somebody's going to walk up to you, and this is what they're going to say, and here is what you need to tell them. And his disciples go, and it happens just as Jesus said, and the conversation plays out pretty much verbatim to what Jesus says. And so we just get this little glimpse of Jesus' omniscience or his all-knowingness and his deity in these verses. And they brought the cult to Jesus. This is verse 7 and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Other, other gospel accounts also talk about palm branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So the people who start to get excited, they're not just random people that happen to see Jesus and these 12 guys walking past. Jesus had been accumulating followers from the beginning of his ministry nine months ago. People had just started to follow him around because there were signs and there was things happening and it was this big to do. And so he had quite a few followers with him. Many of those that were with him on this day had just witnessed him um, healing Bartimaeus very recently, the blind man uh, that we read about last week. He had just healed this blind guy, and so they, they knew that he was capable of these big things. And although it's not in Mark's gospel account, John chapter 12 tells us that Jesus had also very recently healed Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus's that had passed away and when Jesus heard, he goes to the tomb and he weeps 
and he mourns for his friend, and then he calls him back from the grave, and Jesus, or Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so it's very likely that not only have these people witnessed him raise a man from the dead, but that Lazarus is actually standing there with him, that he's traveling along with this big group. And so people are obviously just floored by Jesus and, and what they think he's capable of and what they think he might be doing. So what, they're, what these people are so excited about not only is how awesome the miracles that Jesus can do is, are, they really start to put it together and they think, this guy could be the Messiah. This guy could be the one that has been foretold for so long and he's going to come and he's going to establish a kingdom because the Israelites, the, the Jewish people always wanted a king and they, they got one in Saul and they got one in David and Solomon and it never really worked out for them. But they were a people without a king and they longed for a king and they thought this Messiah was going to come and he was going to be the new King David and he was going to be the greater King David and they were going to be raised from their station of oppression from Rome and they were going to be made this great nation with the one true king and they were surely, surely going to be his privileged followers, right? They were going to get their privilege because they were associated with him before he was actually king. And so once he became king, they would be high and lofty as he was. They thought he would be a conqueror that came. And that's why they were shouting about the kingdom of David. They, they really thought that's who they, they, were shout, they were traveling with. They thought that's what was going to happen. But as we know, they didn't really know who he was. They didn't know who he was. Matthew's account actually says that they, they were calling him prophet. They, they thought he was just another man that maybe God had sent, just another man to do what God had wanted. They didn't know that the man that had raised Lazarus from the dead, the man that in like a week's time would be raising from the dead himself, was actually the second person of the Trinity, God's own son. And not only that, this big group of people that are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, these are the same people that in four days' time would be shouting, crucify him. They're shouting Hosanna, and if you don't know what Hosanna means, it means save or save us. They're shouting, save us, save us. And they have no earthly idea that when they call for his death later on, that's exactly what he's doing. And so we know that this is an appointed time by God, that he, Jesus is approaching the cross and that this has been set in time from the foundations of the world. And Jesus actually kind of speaks to this himself in that account that Nick read for us just a little while ago, while ago out of Luke. Whenever he said, that if these weren't crying out, the rocks would cry out. He's saying, this is happening whether you want it to or not. There's nothing that can stop this, that it has been appointed a time for me to be here. And if these people don't cry out, even the rocks themselves will cry out because this is happening. And so this story ends almost a little lamely in verse 11. And so this procession's coming in and they're, they're, they're thinking, here's the conquering king, he's coming into Jerusalem, he's gonna establish his kingdom and we're all gonna be made awesome. Like we're gonna have privilege and we're gonna be 
the strongest nation in the world. And as he enters in, verse 11 says, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. I think this verse really sums up how this was not a coronation of any means. I mean, his big entry culminates in him showing up, looking around, and leaving with the people he was closest to. And surely, surely this massive horde that had grown around him and was so excited as they see him just kind of casually walk into the temple and look around and be like, all right, guys, let's go. Surely all they could feel was just this crushing disappointment, which may have played into their later saying, crucify him, he's not who we thought he was, right? So why would a story end like this? Why would it end like this? Jesus' entry to Jerusalem was very symbolic. So not only was he, did he just kind of go into town, kind of look around, and then leave. If you read in Luke's account again, I'm sorry, I, I guess I could have put these up there, but Luke's account says that on his way into Jerusalem, he actually stopped and he wept. And you might be thinking, well, Jesus is omniscient. He, he knew it laid before him. And if I knew I was going to a cross and that I was going to be beaten beyond recognition and that I was going to be tortured and spat upon and die... I'd probably weep when I saw that coming too. But that's not the way it's described. It says that he was lamenting the city of Jerusalem, that he knew this people needed a savior and he lamented for them. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was highly symbolic. He was there for the Passover. Uh, and if you don't know what the Passover is or you don't quite remember, it's from Exodus, right? The Israelites have been enslaved by Egypt and they're calling for their freedom. They're crying out to God, send us, you know, free us. And God uses his man Moses to come as his instrument and help free them from Egypt. God frees the Israelites. And in the story, Moses actually enacts these plagues from God on Egypt, showing God's power and might over Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt, and so much so that Pharaoh ultimately says, okay, just get your people and go. And so this celebration, Passover, is about the last plague, which is the plague of death. And what it was, was the angel of death was going to pass over or was going to go through Egypt and kill every firstborn son in the nation of Egypt. And yet, through Moses, God told his people, what you're going to do, Israelites, is you're going to take a spotless lamb and you're going to kill it and you're going to wipe its blood over your door mantle. And as you do that, when the, the angel of death passes, it will pass over your house. It's going to pass you by because there's already been death there. That, that child has been atoned for by the death of this, this spotless lamb. And of course, we know now that that was foreshadowing to the ultimate lamb coming, right? And so they're there celebrating the Passover when the blood of an innocent lamb is going to cover the mantles and the Israelites are going to be freed from Egypt and the angel of death passes judgment over Egypt. And so as I mentioned just a little while ago that the Jewish calendar is a little different than ours. Um, so what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, because it's convenient, we're all here, um, 
it would actually have been a Monday. And so if you're trying to do the math and you're like, okay, well, there's a Palm Sunday and then, it, you know, four days later Jesus is crucified, that makes it a Thursday. No, we're wrong. Palm Sunday is actually Palm Monday. And it would have been the 10th day of the month Nisan, okay? And so in the Passover celebrations, what happens on the 10th day is that they would go out and they would select the lamb that would be slaughtered in the cell, like to signify the lamb that was killed to save the Israelites. And so why it's so significant, what Jesus is actually doing here, why it's not a real triumphal entry for Jesus, it's not a coronation. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the reason he actually goes in is because that's the time that the selected lamb was to be brought into Jerusalem. And as we know, Christ was that lamb. And so he enters in as this God's selection for the sacrifice for man's sin. And four days later, we know that that lamb would be sacrificed. It was no coronation. They thought they were getting a king but what they really needed was a lamb. We're getting ready to close here. Ben, if you want to go ahead and come back up. So how, how does this relate to us? I mean, obviously, like, there's a lamb slain. We know Jesus is going to die. The same is exactly, the true for, is exactly true for us as it was for those people. We think we want a king. We think that kingdom is what, what we need, Right? I, I need to be king of my own life. I need, I need money as my king. Like, money is my king. I, I need it to rule my life. I need it to, to lead me. I, like, I need money. I need relationships, power, a job, whatever it might be. And we try to make those things king of our lives and that those are going to rule our lives and we're going to be privileged because of those things. But what we really need is a lamb that can wash us clean and make us whole. Because we are sinful people. We are still needing that same atonement that they needed. And Jesus is that perfect atonement for us. And so I don't know if that has ever happened for you. If you've ever taken the time to give Christ kingship over your heart, if you've ever given him lordship over your life. But if you want to do that, I'm going to be in the back here in just a few minutes. Um, and maybe you're thinking, you know what, I had kind of a false coronation too. It's not that I'm not a Christian. It's not that I don't believe. It's just that every time I say, oh, Jesus, I want you to be king, I just turn around and I pick that crown back up and I set it back on my head and I don't act very much like a Christian. I don't submit myself to Christ. And if that's you and you're a Christian and, and you just feel that way, I mean, I'd love to talk to you as well. But I'll be in the back here in just a moment.